What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and mindset optimization, while making sure to not lose sight of the practical and applicable side of things. I'm your host, Jordan Lips, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in. I appreciate you. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Where Optimal Meets Practical. Today, I'm so excited to have my coach on, my first guest on the podcast, Ryan Solomon. How's it going, dude? It's going well. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure, man. It's just, um, I get a lot of questions. People are like, oh, you have a coach? Like, like, you are a coach. Like, why do you need a coach? And I just feel like <laughs> there's just, if I had to give one piece of advice to new and up-and-coming up coaches, it would be to have a coach. Like, even if you think you know everything, which you don't, You'll learn mm-hmm. different systems, different ways of saying something, different ways of you know phrasing something, different ways of you know coaching styles. And working with you has done all of those things for me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it has been to just turn this into a total love fest, a pre- pleasure to coach you, man. Like, you know, I absolutely agree with all of your points of having a coach. Just for one, it's hard to be objective with ourselves whether we are a coach or not, and. Having a coach can just see different angles at things and you you throw a lot of like really good questions off of me and that really helps me become a better coach with having that back and forth with you and for everybody listening, like just because Jordan has a coach doesn't mean he doesn't know his shit because he definitely does and he loves to push me in those check-ins about, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And we have great back and forth, so... Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's been great. Why don't you give everybody just a quick background about you, where your background is from a health and fitness standpoint, and also where people can find you, and then we'll jump into today's topic. Yeah, man. So you can find all my stuff. Revivestronger.com has more about me. And then Instagram, Ryan J. Solomon, Revive Stronger. We have a podcast as well. But a quick background on me is I started lifting back for sports in high school, absolutely freaking hated it. It was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Every time the coach would leave the gym, I would just sit down and talk to friends. And then after a while, my coach was like, hey, you know, if you take this lifting stuff more seriously, you might be able to be pretty good football player. So I was like, "Ah, all right, I'll commit to this a little more, committed to it, started seeing kind of my body changing, getting stronger, stuff like that, and basically just fell in love with it. So over the years, lost quite a bit of weight, decided, hey, this is pretty cool. After seeing that I can control kind of my body weight and control the way my physique looks and that sort of thing, it made me kind of take control in other areas of my life. And my grades got better and my relationships got better. And I just started taking a more kind of long-term view to things. And I was like, hey, you know, it'd be a pretty sweet job if I could not only help people look better get stronger and that sort of thing, but also help them kind of see the benefits that fitness can have as being kind of a, a catalyst of making other areas of areas of your life better. So I was like, Hey, this would be pretty cool. Went to school for, to get my master's degree in exercise science. And then along that timeline, I kind of started up with my own coaching and that sort of thing. And for a little while there, I was on my own, but then I started working with Steve Hall from revive stronger and Eventually, I kind of did a little bit of an internship there and then started coaching full-time about, well, probably a year and a half ago, almost, maybe almost two years. I don't know, probably a year and a half. So that's kind of my spiel. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like there's definitely a lot of people who come from a background of having had fitness affect them and then just kind of that pay it forward mentality. And I definitely, I definitely resonate with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, man. So today's topic is going to circle around the question of why does fat loss plateau? And I think it's a really great springboard for a lot of different conversations, but just to kick us off and give us something to work with, like if I was a client and I said, Hey, why does my fat loss plateau or why, you know, I've heard that it will inevitably plateau. Why are these plateaus happening? And I think we can talk a little bit about the physiology and we can also talk a little bit about the psychology and the habitual side, but mm-hmm. touching just specifically on the physiology before we talk a little bit about maybe habit formation or deformation, but what would your answer be? Yeah. So I would say on the most fundamental level, fat loss is going to stop because we are no longer in an energy deficit, meaning we are no longer either consuming less calories than we're expending every day, or we don't have that deficit there. And on the reason why this kind of occurs, or we think that this tends to occur is because the body can kind of be an SOB and doesn't really love losing a whole bunch of body fat as our body doesn't want to starve to death. It wants to keep some of that stored energy around so we can, you know, survive. So it has these kind of things in place to where if we start losing a certain amount of body fat to where our body's going to try to kind of reduce that calorie deficit. So this kind of brings in the idea of metabolic adaptation. And that's kind of what people are talking about when they say their metabolism is adapting and they're experiencing some metabolic adaptation. It's, it's basically your body trying to kind of reduce that calorie deficit so you don't lose all of your body fat and kind of starve. So I think that will kind of set us up for different avenues to go there. I'm not sure where do you like to kind of branch off from there. I think you made a very good point. I think that there's a, we view it in today's like quote unquote, like obesogenic food environment as a bad thing, but this is quite frankly, an an evolutionary physiological um, mechanism that's probably kept us alive for an extremely long period of time when food was more scarce. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have way more of an uh, an abundance issue than today, more of an uh, overconsumption issue today than we do underconsumption. And it just so happens that this, you know, metabolic adaptation, this physiological mechanism is hindering us from doing what's more important today, probably, which is coming down, losing some fat into a healthier body range. So I just Mm -hmm. feel like we need to view it as like, hey, this isn't inherently a bad thing. Inherently, it's a good thing. Just so happens in our food environment, our more sedentary lifestyle today, it just is something that we have to work with. I think that there's, um, I think that there's two situations where, or two people out there listening to this, two scenarios where plateauing or metabolic adaptation plays a really important role. And I want to talk about them sequentially, but the first one would be somebody who's in a deficit phase, in a cutting phase, or has been in a phase for quite some time, and now their fat loss has plateaued. So they're in the middle of a fat loss phase, and you know maybe they've been cutting at 1,600 calories, and it's been working for four to eight weeks, and now weight loss has slowed. Like, what is going on there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it could be a variety of things, but if I assume that adherence is on point, and that someone's dialed in with their their tracking and all of that is kind of remaining constant it seems as though well one thing that is going to affect our 
the amount of calories we burn is just being a smaller body carrying around less weight. You're going to burn less energy that way. And adipose tissue is a little bit metabolically active, less, lesser so than muscle tissue, but we do have some metabolic adaptivity there. So we are going to just see a de decrease because of that alone. But usually we see more of a decrease than what's expected from just that kind of portion right there. And we think that kind of the main reason that we see this is decreases in non-exercise activity. So this is going to be things like you're kind of fidgeting around, you're bobbing your feet, you're, you're, you're even holding your posture up straight. It could be just kind of subconscious decisions you make throughout the day of sitting down more or standing up less. And an example of this is like some people feel like or we all kind of know those people that can kind of eat whatever they want and they just don't seem to put on weight. And I feel like I'm talking to one of them right now, Jordan, he really has to hammer that food to put down anyway. And a lot of these, these people that you think about that can just eat a whole bunch and not gain a lot of weight. Well, usually if you kind of just kind of observe their behaviors, a lot of the times they're, they're kind of the type of person that is kind of maybe a little bit more peppy kind of high energy person to where they're kind of fidgeting around a lot doing that. That's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about knee. And it seems as though while dieting, we can really, really decrease that, that side of the kind of energy balance equation. So yes, we, we likely get a little bit of that, that decrease in energy expenditure via just losing body weight and carrying around a smaller body and having that side of things. But it seems as though this neat, neat component probably plays a little bit greater of a role. And even with like competitive bodybuilders, they'll they'll notice it to the point to where they are literally like talking slower in their conversations. And I think someone mentioned that they could see that they're blinking slower and stuff like that. And it's just like your whole body will kind of slow down because it's like, hey, we don't want to lose all this body fat and we want to kind of reduce this de deficit as much as we can. So when you're discussing NEAT, a lot of times people kind of lump in subconscious and conscious movement that are not exercise. And uh, we can, that can be a conversation for, for yeah. another day. But what's, what's, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, what's happening is that the subconscious movement is stuff, of course, because it's subconscious that we can't do anything about. So you can't help that you're fidgeting less. You can't help that you're talking with your hands less. You can't help that you're bobbing your head to music less, that you're you know, mm -hmm. subconsciously more inclined to get up and move right? Maybe you would have sat on the couch, but instead you're going to get up and fold your clothes or get up and go do something around the house. Like you can't do it. You can't do anything about any of that because it yeah. is subconscious. But I do find that with clients to help mitigate that understood, that accepted, that, that subconscious downregulation, that downregulation of our subconscious movement, that it can be helpful to increase something like steps. Would you agree with that as something to like manually override or at least help compensate for that downregulation? Like, Yes, absolutely. So like you said, neat from a, a technical standpoint is kind of like unplanned movement to where steps in particular, like if you're planning for them, that not necessarily what we're talking about, but I think that for in practice, we can kind of lump those together a little bit and it kind of works out well. And neat or increasing your step count is kind of a a nice kind of a low fatiguing way, like just increasing your steps. It's not going to like kill you. Usually it's just kind of the time component to it and being aware of your movement by having a step tracker or something like that 
can be a great way to kind of make up for those reductions in activity that you might just be doing kind of subconsciously for sure. So, so circling back to that scenario of the person who's in the midst of a fat loss phase and they're thinking, okay, I hear you. Metabolic adaptation, it's a thing. My, my metabolism, my total energy expenditure is going to come down by nature of the fact that I'm smaller, that I'm eating less food, so less thermic effective food. My subconscious movement is down. I get it. I can't do anything about that. But what could you do to mitigate to some degree? I think we just spoke on something as steps. It can be a really mm-hmm. great thing. But is there anything else people can do with the diet with, you know, cycling their calories or cycling carbohydrates or taking refeeds or taking diet breaks? Is there something on the short term in terms of intra diet within a, within a cutting phase that people can mm-hmm. do? Yeah, man. So I, I know we've had check-ins about this and they could definitely go along here. So I, I think one thing on, on the activity side of thing, absolutely having that step count, being aware of your steps and maybe shooting for a weekly average. That is one thing that you can do to maybe prevent some of those reductions that you might see in your energy deficit there. But it sounds like this question was more so along the lines of any particular kind of diet structure or dieting strategy to where (laughs) you can mitigate these effects that you see in the fat loss phase. So this might be things like refeeds, diet breaks, calorie cycling, and stuff like that. And it's hard to say, there has been some recent literature on refeeds, but the the research on refeeds is very sparse and there's not much. And what we do have, there's small sample sizes and there's limit, limitations with all research. However, a recent study that recently came out by Campbell, it, there, there, it suggests that there might be something to maybe retaining lean body mass a little bit better if you have some sort of refeeds throughout your diet to where when I'm talking about refeeds, I'm talking about increasing your calories on certain days, mainly via carbohydrates. So if you are dieting on 2000 calories and maintenance is 2,500, you might bring your calories up by 500 to maintenance on those refeeds. And you would primarily do that through carbohydrates as the idea behind that is, you know, if we eat enough fats, having more fats probably isn't going to be that beneficial for training performance and stuff like that. And same with protein. If we have enough, well, eating more probably isn't going to do a ton for us, but when we are in a deficit and calories are reduced and we might have a low stored carbohydrates anyways, well, eating as many carbs as we can might help from a training performance standpoint. And it seems as though having a couple of kind of refeeds there might help. However, I still have a hard time with that argument just because if you keep calories level throughout the week, well, or if on your refeeds, if you equate for weekly calories, well, then your carbs throughout the entire duration of the week are still going to be about the same. And I, I'm not sure how much performance is actually going to benefit from those two days there. Now, another argument is that hey, maybe completely coming out of the deficit for two days might help with some of those adaptations that we see in your non-exercise activity or your metabolic rate, certain down regulations and hormones that we might see when dieting. And maybe by 
just dieting a little bit more aggressively to kind of make up for those two days you come out of the diet, maybe that's not going to hurt you very much. And maybe it will be more beneficial to come out of the diet for those two days. I, I think that that makes sense from a theoretical perspective. And I think that trying something like that at least makes sense in theory. But I do think that in practice, you run into issues with using a lot of calories, cycling, refeeds, and stuff like that. And I know that in particular for, for clients that have a history of maybe restricting themselves really hard and then going on the other end and maybe binging and stuff like that, I do not like to kind of calorie cycle. I think that it can kind of set up that mentality of restrict, 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 and then kind of go nuts on those two days. And I also think there's a certain type of client that if they have those two refeeds, then that's all they think about all week long. And while they're having those refeeds, they're getting, they're getting to the end of their second refeed and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to wait a whole nother week for my refeeds again. And they, they're just more food focused because of it. So in those two situations, I don't think that the theoretical benefits of refeeds are worth the kind of practical limitations we have there. However, there is a certain type of client that they like having refeeds. They look forward to them. They are more busy with social activities on the weekends and having refeeds on those days helps them adhere to their diet better. And they're able to adhere to their diet much better with having a couple of refeeds there. And in those situations, I'm like, yeah, let's go for it. I think that there's a little bit of theoretical rationale for why they might be helpful. But since I can make the argument kind of pro and against refeed, I think it largely comes down to kind of personal preference on which one you choose. And I don't think just having two weeks where you come out of the deficit is really going to be significant enough to make it a far superior dieting strategy than just kind of dieting straight through. So that's kind of refeeds there. Let me know if you've got anything to follow on. Yeah, there's a ton there, first of all. Um, I think one, <laughs> one of my pet peeves, I want to jump back to something you said in the beginning was one of my pet peeves is the usage of the term refeed in general. I think that we need to come to a very clear uh, and concise decision as to are we talking about refeeds within the context of equating for equal calories across a week? I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, are refeeds good? And it's like, well, you know, if I if I refeed, if I use refeeds, am I going to get to my goal faster? Am I going to lose more weight? I mean, if you equate for equal calories, you're probably going to make equal progress. But if somebody's like, yeah, if mm -hmm. I use refeeds, am I going to get to my goal faster? But no, not if you're not <laughs> taking those calories from other days and, and lowering your calories on the non-refeed days. So I think that we mm -hmm. need to come to a, a, an agreement as to, are we talking about refeeds in, in terms of equating calories across the week or not? And the second thing is that, like you said, you could make a theoretical mechanistic argument as to why consecutive day high carb refeeds might, might be helpful, mm -hmm. but it's not binary. It's like, it might be helpful. First of all, it's already an uncertainty, right? The qualifier mm -hmm. might be helpful. And then it's by how much and what's the trade-off? And if it, if it's better by, you know, a single digit percentage, um, but I freaking hate it, then it's not worth it. And we have this long list of things. And that's kind of where this, the name of the podcast came, the, the balance of optimal and practical. We have a long list of things that in a binary sense matter. They make a difference, but everything has a cost. Not only do you have only so much mental energy to expend on certain decisions, but you also has you also have like a 
a personal preference profile that the more you match your decisions up with your own personal preferences, the less energy it's going to take to expend to adhere to the program. And if I tell mm -hmm. you that refeeds are great and, you know, doing a five and two split where you have a refeed on the weekends, if I tell you that it's better and that it's more, more uh, metabolically optimal and you, you freaking hate it. And like you said, it increases food focus <laughs> and decreases enjoyment during the week, then it's definitely not worth it. And I'd say that I send all my clients during the, I, I make a little like fat loss one-on-one -on -one video course when they sign on and, one of the earlier videos is the video on calorie cycling. And the first option, I did a podcast on it as well. The first option is not calorie cycling, but understanding the concept of weekly calories where you can borrow, you know, if you want to, the idea of using static calories across the week, every single day, same calories or same calorie range, and then being able to kind of quote unquote auto-regulate. If you have a high day, you can borrow from other days. I think more people hear about using refeeds and they hear about calorie cycling and think, oh, this is better. And it's, you know, you're four days into your first uh, refeed week and your refeed is three days away and all you can think about is food. And that's kind of, like you said, an indicator of like maybe not best practice for this person. So I think we need to remember what's the magnitude of, of benefit. And in this case, very low, if at all. So mm -hmm you have to circle back around and be like, do I like, do, do, am I going to enjoy this? Is it going to improve adherence? Is it going to improve enjoyment? And like you said, you can make an argument both ways. So you kind of got to look internally and say, does this work for me? Right. Yep. I 100% agree. It's about comparing those trade-offs of, Hey, you know, are the theoretical benefits of a refeed worth it in this context with this person with these preferences and would this potentially be a better option here? And you could apply this to a whole bunch of things with training and nutrition to where it's really about, hey, what what are the costs of doing this? And what are the potential benefits? And is it going to lead to me getting closer to my goal? So I do want to come back to this person who's asking this question saying, okay, what do I do? My, my fat loss has plateaued and we, we can go into like, you know, am I in starvation mode is what a lot of people will, they'll come to that you know, hypothetical conclusion that made up conclusion that they are in fact, you know, eating too little or God knows whatever mm -hmm. other things that they can reach for like uh, straws to grasp at. But now, I, now I've been dieting at 1600 calories for eight weeks. It was going well. And now it's not maybe, maybe my steps are in check. My workouts are in check. Um, but it's just not moving. What, what am I supposed to do at this point? Yeah. So if you've been dieting for a while now and things have kind of stopped. You're not sure where to turn. There's a couple of different things you can do. So if you are, if you're generally still feeling pretty good, like you don't have like a crazy amount of food focus and in general, your training still going well, you're still sleeping pretty well and things are going good. The first thing I would look at is just increasing that calorie deficit. So I might bump those calories down by maybe one to 200 calories per day or I might increase activity a little bit, or I might kind of do a combination of both. If you're telling me that, yeah, I, I feel like I'm eating enough food right now and things have just kind of stalled out, well, I might first look to reduce food there. But if you tell me that, you know, I still feel pretty good, but this, this does feel like a, a low amount of food kind of relatively to where I'm at. And I think in this situation, I might actually prefer doing a little bit of activity and cardio. Well, then I will increase activity a little bit. So in that situation, that's kind of where I'd go with that. But if someone's been dieting for say eight to 12 weeks and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm just feeling really fatigued. I have a lot of food focus. I'm 
thinking about food all the time. My training performance just doesn't feel good. I'm, I'm just really not sure where to go here. Well, then I would strongly consider some sort of kind of maintenance phase or diet break. So either like a one week deload diet breaks to where we see how we feel at the end of that phase. And if you're still feeling kind of like garbage, well, then maybe it's kind of time to have a full mesocycle of kind of maintenance calories. And we really give, give, give yourself a little bit of a break. We maintain that entire month and we drop that diet, diet fatigue and we can get back to the diet after that kind of maintenance phase. And I think after dieting for 12 to 16 weeks, somewhere in there, people are usually ready for like a few weeks of kind of maintenance. And I would say if you're, you've been dieting for less so, so if you've only been dieting for four or five weeks, then you might be good with just kind of a week at maintenance. And there's some interesting research. It's the Matador study to where they basically dieted for two weeks and they took two weeks of a break, dieted for two weeks, two weeks of a break. And it seems as though the, the group that took the two weeks of a break interspersed with two weeks of dieting compared to the group that just dieted straight through that the group that took the breaks seems as though they lost fat, maybe just a little bit more efficiently. So for each unit of time they spent dieting, they may have lost a little bit more fat. However, their diet was also twice as long. And that, that for sure doesn't mean that that's the best strategy for everyone. And I'm, I'm not sure if that is really that much better than dieting straight through, but then getting back to maintenance for an extended period of time or going into a gaining phase and something like that. And I think that practically it seems as though having kind of maybe a deload and a diet break paired together every four to six weeks. And then maybe after three or four mesocycles of that, then you might look at, okay, is diet fatigue really high? Are you feeling a little bit rough? Then we might look at a more extended maintenance phase if we still have further to kind of dig there regarding fat loss. So I kind of forget the origin of your question, uh, but hopefully that kind of covers it. Yeah, I, no, no, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I think that that kind of circles to situation number two where somebody's, I think we have to look at taking breaks at maintenance as from an intra, like within a cutting phase or a inter between cutting phases. So between longer period of cutting phases, taking something like a maintenance phase of something like, you know, at least a half to about as long as you were in that deficit, if you were in a deficit 12 to 16 weeks, and then looking at calorie cycling and 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 diet breaks within a phase, maybe those like either, you know, consecutive day refeeds or one to two week breaks within, you know, every, like you said, once per mesocycle, PS for anybody not understanding that lingo. A mesocycle is like a cycle of training. So anywhere from like four to six weeks followed by a deload, we'd compact that and call that a mesocycle. So maybe every time you get to your deload, you also take a diet break, which can prolong how long you can go without accumulating that diet fatigue. Um, back to the Matador study, basically, like you said, there were people were dieting for two weeks on and then two weeks at maintenance and then two weeks on and then two weeks at maintenance. And you could also say that those people might've just adhered better. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. there's no, there's a lot of like human error potential there. Um, <laughs> and those people just could have adhered better. And it could have, like we said, gone back to personal preference and uh, would have just been equivalent uh, if people had maybe self-selected the the process that they would have enjoyed. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that that brings up the, the next scenario. I just want to kind of hammer home that point is that scenario two is 
where does metabolic adaptation take place, right? First, it takes place within a diet. Is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do within our diet phase? Sure, we can maybe use refeeds if you like it. I think we've come to the conclusion that personal preference reigns supreme there. And you can probably use a little bit of like, quote unquote, manual override in terms of your NEAT and make sure you keep, at the very least, keep your steps where they are. Because the the cool phenomenon here is if you if you're at maintenance, and you're wearing your Fitbit and you're getting 10,000 steps and then I put you in a deficit and you take your Fitbit off and you're not actually monitoring your steps, like your steps will naturally go down. Your body, I know you think, I know you think you're in control of your body, but you're just not <laughs> as much as you think. If you were to take your Fitbit off, when you get into a deficit, your steps will naturally come down. Your body will naturally cause you to sit more and fidget less and walk less and get up and you know check the fridge less. I guess if you're in a deficit, maybe those are the steps you are getting, but. <laughs> But um, I think it comes down to now I'm at the end of my phase and now I'm at the end of my deficit. Can I do anything to mitigate that metabolic adaptation? Is that maintenance phase that you spoke about where we actually, you know, I think the issue with, I think the the kind of critique of using short refeeds of two day consecutive at maintenance or a diet break, which may be like seven to 14 days at maintenance is it might just not be a, a, the magnitude of length. It might not be long enough to really mitigate kind of reverse some of those metabolic adaptations and I think that there's a combination of magnitude in terms of how many more calories you're eating maybe a little bit of body fat gain and a length of doing that like how long am I sending this signal of you're not in a deficit anymore for my body to get back to baseline or maybe and we could talk about settling points maybe if we have time at the end but like is that maintenance phase of anywhere from half to about the whole time you were in a deficit at maintenance going to reverse metabolic adaptation? And if so, how much? Um, and is that something that, you know, everybody definitely should be doing? Yeah, so I, I'm i not sure if I can answer this question without touching on body fat settling point just a touch. So Go for it. body fat settling point is basically the idea that we have kind of a, a lower end of body fat to where our body feels good. For guys, this is usually around about 10% body fat. We we notice that we feel pretty good, like our sleep is good, our our training is good, we're not super food focused, we're feeling generally satiated after meals, like we're feeling pretty good. And females, you could probably add like seven or eight percent to these numbers. And it seems as though if we try to stay too lean, then there's no amount of maintenance phases and working our calories up and any particular hacks that we can do to just feel awesome. Like our body is just like, Hey, our body fat is just too low right now. And I'm not going to let you feel great until we increase it a little bit. So the answer to this question largely depends on where we end that deficit. If somebody ends their, their entire fat loss phase and they generally still feel pretty decent. Like maybe it's a guy and he only, he, he, I say only, but like, this is still a very lean guy, like 10 to 12%. If you get down there and you say you have a deload and a diet break. And after that deload and diet break, like you're feeling pretty good. You're pretty satiated. Your training performance in the gym is pretty good. Your, your sleep is good. Well, you might not need nearly as long as someone that kind of dipped below their kind of settling point. And I would say that if someone doesn't kind of dip below that settling point a whole, a whole lot, well, they can probably feel really good after just maybe 
four to six weeks of kind of a maintenance phase. I, I still like having that maintenance phase there to kind of reset things, make sure that diet fatigue is cleared away. Sometimes you don't realize how diet fatigued you are until you're really out of that deficit for a few weeks. And I think that really sets up for a good kind of start to your gaining phase. If that's kind of where you want to go with things, clearing that diet fatigue and moving forward from there. But if you're just kind of getting to the lower end of that settling range, I think that just a mesocycle ish of maintenance is probably good for you. Now, if you finish this fat loss phase and you're like, okay, I got pretty dang lean here. I'm really food focused. I'm really hungry. I'm my training performance. Isn't good. Can I just reverse calories and feel better? Is that enough? And I, I don't think it is. I think that we get to a point of body fat to where there's no amount of reverse dieting that can kind of save us without increasing our body fat levels as Body fat is kind of a big endocrine organ, meaning it secretes hormones and that sort of thing. And it seems as though certain hormones are tied to the size of our body fat cells. So if our body fat cells remain like totally depleted, and when we lose body fat, we basically just shrink our body fat cells. We don't actually like get rid of our body fat cells. So we shrink those down and if they stay depleted, it doesn't seem as though some of these hormones and things kind of come back. And there's actually a, a little bit of recent research on people post competition phase. So competition or competitive athletes and the ones that recovered best were the ones that brought their body weight back at least to some degree. And the ones that didn't see increases in certain hormones and other things, they're the ones that kept their body weight reduced even when some of those individuals reversed their calories and were eating a lot more, they still saw these kind of blunted kind of metabolic adaptations and that sort of thing. So I do think that there's a point after a diet to where if you're at a certain level of leanness, no amount of reverse dieting and stuff like that is kind of going to save you. And I think that for most people, if you're just kind of getting generally lean to the kind of the lower end of your settling range, three to five weeks of maintenance is probably pretty good for most people. Now, if you came down from a very high body fat and you lost a hundred pounds over the course of a year or two or something like that, well, settling point is tricky. And it kind of comes back here as well to where when you kind of went up to that level, it may have reset your settling point a little bit higher. So for this individual, it might be much more difficult for them to maintain a 10 to 12% body fat and their lower end of their settling point might look more like 15 or 16% body fat. And that can kind of be an SOB. And I'm not sure if maintaining a reduced body weight over time will, will actually make that better. But I do think that there's, if you go dip below that settling point enough that you're not going to feel totally totally normal until increasing that body fat a little bit. And depending on where you start from, you might have to adjust where that kind of settling point is and that sort of thing. So does that kind of get at that question a little bit there? Totally. And uh, I, I almost, it's almost unfortunate how many follow-up <laughs> questions I have in my head. Um, you know, what I kind of want to make clear to the listeners, it, it, it definitely 
it, likely what we're talking about, those ramifications of getting super, of super lean, the you your body wanting to gain some body fat back to a point where it's operating optimally, it, yes, it probably increases in magnitude the leaner you get. But it's also relative. There also might mm-hmm. be some people who can operate at a leaner body fat percentage and not have those, you know, Ryan briefly touched 100%. on the uh, hormone leptin, which is obviously secreted by your fat cells, kind of regulates satiety. And there might some, be some people who operate totally fine at, at six, seven, eight percent body fat. Obviously, that's an extreme example. Most of us, most of us, if we were to get and try and stay that lean, our body would want us to gain some body fat back so that we would feel mm-hmm. good. But it is going to be different for everybody where it is that are like how far away from our settling point we can go. So yes, it does matter. Like, listen, if we're talking about single digit body fat percentage for guys and, and whatever, like like you said, plus seven or eight percent for women, that Yes, most people are going to not feel great there, and most people are going to feel better when they gain some body fat back. But it is also... Go for a walk or call a friend. It is also uh, going to be something where everyone's going to react different genetically, and and there's... I I kind of want you to touch on something that I know we've talked about during check-ins. There might be something to magnitude of weight loss and how much weight loss, how much weight you've lost across however period of time, and also maybe something to the speed of that magnitude. So like pounds per week across how much weight you've lost as per how much metabolic adaptation you might incur across that period of time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and and maybe you can touch on or, or correct me if I'm wrong in saying that the point of that maintenance phase, that long maintenance phase is also, yes, you want to decrease diet fatigue. You want to get your body and mind, and especially if you want to go into another cutting phase, back to a place where you know, if you short your maintenance phase, if you have been dieting for 12 weeks and you take a two week break and you might feel fine, you might feel, you might either feel or convince yourself that you feel good. You don't have another 12 weeks of dieting in you that you might feel good after 14 days, but that same, what you felt like at the end of week 12, you might feel like at the end of week three or four. And it's probably Mm -hmm. better for you to kind of pay your dues and take a maintenance phase, you know, don't don't just go into a, uh, back into a cutting phase the day you feel good. Maybe yeah. spend a period of time there to kind of plant the flag at this body weight and get yourself to a place where you feel really good, not for a day, but for weeks, so that if you mm-hmm. want to go into another cutting phase, you can do it for a prolonged period of time. I feel like I have some clients who have dieted for you know 12 weeks, let's say, interspersed with some diet breaks, and we're two weeks into a maintenance phase, and they're like, I feel good, let's cut again. And it's like, you might yeah. feel good right now, but if we go into a cutting phase... Remember what you felt like at the end of week 12? Like we might be looking at that at the end of week four. So we really want to kind of plant the flag, set our feet in and buy ourselves more time down the line if we do want to die for a longer period of time. Um, there was a question in there for you. <laughs> I could have sworn. Yes, I do want to touch on like, is there a, is the magnitude of weight loss the only thing that we're thinking about in terms of metabolic adaptation? Somebody loses a hundred pounds. Does it matter if they lost it in, you know, you hear a lot about, don't lose weight fast. Don't lose weight. You know, you should go really slow, slow and steady, be the tortoise. And the idea, and I still hear this all the time on, on social media, IG gurus is like, if you don't, if you lose weight fast, your metabolism is going to crash. And I, I just want you to, to touch on that, whether or not that's horseshit or there, <laughs> there's some shred of truth within there. Yeah. So real quick, before I touch on that, I do want to say that when we talk about body fat settling ranges and stuff like that. Everybody's distributes their body fat percentage a little bit differently. And 
10% body fat on me is going to look different than 10% on Jordan. And it's, it's really tricky to just kind of compare yourself to other people on Instagram and stuff like that, because some people, they just don't carry body fat in their midsection. And you might be like, Oh, I'm never lean enough to go through a gaining phase and stuff like that. So just keep that in mind. But as for your question here, so is it just magnitude alone? Should you only go slow and steady or is there a time component as well? And I would say that one point is that on the practical side of things, losing weight more aggressively at the start tends to improve long-term adherence as you kind of get the ball rolling with clients and they see, okay, I'm making progress or this is actually working or we're seeing the scale go down. They get that immediate kind of gratification and that can kind of actually help long-term progress. So I think that the whole idea of we have to go super slow at the start, we just want to kind of ease into it. I think that's a good way to not see any results after like three or four weeks of work and really just kind of be like, oh, it didn't work. I'm, I'm done now. To where if you really get the ball rolling, it can help. And on a more kind of physiological level, are we going to see more metabolic adaptations if the magnitude of loss is the same, but we just take longer in one diet or the other? So I think that no matter what, when, you, when you're dieting, at, on some level, you're kind of on the clock to where even if you're dieting very slowly, it's still, it's still more restrictive than being at maintenance. And there is at least some sort of mental fatigue that's coming there. Now, is there probably some physiological fatigue as well that's building up from just being in a deficit? I think that's probably likely. So I do think on some level, going too slow with things is just increasing the time that you're spending in a deficit, which is decreasing the amount of time you're spending at maintenance, eating enough food, progressing, and that sort of thing. And I do think that if you compare those, I wouldn't just go slow to go slow. Now, if we flip to the other end of thing, is crash dieting going to be awful and stuff like that? And it seems as though losing more than about 1% of your body weight per week. And when I give these numbers, disregard the first week of fat loss completely as in that first week, you're reducing food. There's going to be less food in your gut. You're going to be getting rid of a lot of water. You could lose like four or five pounds and I'm not worried about it. But as you get into things, losing more than about 1% of body weight per week, it might put you at a little bit more risk to lose muscle mass. And we probably definitely don't want to do that as that retention of lean body mass really helps us with our kind of not seeing decreases in our metabolism and stuff like that. It kind of keeps our energy expenditure just a little bit higher. And it also is kind of probably the look that we're going for maintaining our muscle and getting rid of that body fat. So going much above 1% of your body weight per week for at least an extended period of time probably isn't the best idea, especially if you're already pretty dang lean. So if you're already 12% trying to, or a guy at 12% body fat, trying to lose like faster than 1% per week probably isn't the best idea. But if you're over like 20%, you might be able to get away with being on that 1% or even a little bit higher than that 1.5. So the leaner you get, you're probably going to lose a little bit slower. And 
I would say that a good kind of general range is maybe losing between about half of a percent to 1% of your body weight per week. I think that's a nice kind of middle ground of, hey, we're not losing so slow that we're just kind of arbitrarily losing weight slowly and building up that mental fatigue of being in a deficit and not, not getting back to a place to where we're eating enough food, progressing and stuff like that. And then not losing much more than around 1, 1.5% if you're kind of starting on the higher side of body fat. That kind of helps us, hey, you know, we are going to lose at a rate to where it's mainly coming from body fat. We can retain that lean body mass, that muscle mass, and kind of lose it at a solid rate there. So that's kind of where I go with that question. Yeah, I think that if you take a person who's, let's say, let's take an example, a 200-pound person loses 10 pounds over 10 weeks, right? So 10 pounds over 10 weeks or 10 pounds over five weeks. Does one of those person, does one of those scenarios incur more metabolic adaptation? And I think, you know, something we had spoken about was, it, the magnitude of weight loss, the amount of total pounds that you lose are relative to your body weight and also relative to your settling point. Like that's probably going to be the main driver almost entirely of the amount of metabolic adaptation you incur. But there's probably something in isolation um, unique about spending a long time in the deficit. And there's probably also something unique about going really, really fast. So they probably mm -hmm. both, they have the same magnitude, right? This person lost 10 pounds. One person lost 10 pounds and also went really fast. So probably has a little bit of this side here. Um, another person lost the same 10 pounds, but with, you know, and that being the biggest uh, factor in terms of metabolic adaptation, but they also weren't in deficit for longer. So my guess is they're probably very similar in terms of outcome, in terms of, you know, how much did my metabolism actually go down beyond which I'd expect it from just the amount of pounds I've lost. It's probably very similar. And I know that there are, advocates out there for faster fat loss because you could say that that person who lost it in five weeks can transition into maintenance and they can be at maintenance and maybe in a surplus by the time that mm -hmm. other person has lost that weight and net net over the same period of time the person who lost weight for five weeks and then was at maintenance for five weeks is in a you know at the end of 10 weeks in a better position metabolically the the problem i see and, and i you know, I'm currently taking Martin McDonald's MNU course, and I know Martin is a big advocate of, of at least highlighting that argument. And I don't know if it's his position that it's better or worse, but highlighting that mm -hmm. argument. I think one of the issues is that the person who diets really, really hard for five weeks and then properly transitions themselves into maintenance, and, and you know, that, that would be a more drastic transition because you probably have somebody who's been dieting really low calories. Getting them to properly transition out of a really restrictive diet, you know, they, they, they made a decision like, hey, I'm going to diet fast. It, it usually doesn't go like this. It usually doesn't go, hey, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna go into a large deficit. I'm going to be really, really hungry, really tired, but I'm going to lose really fast. And then right when it's over, I'm going to perfectly transition myself into maintenance. It usually <laughs> looks, not usually, but it, it often looks like, especially without, you know, working with a, a coach who's going to try and keep you in bounds here. It usually looks mm -hmm. like every crash diet and binge cycle that anybody's ever been on, any yo-yo dieting cycle that anybody's ever been on. So I think that it loses a little bit of, um, a little bit of clout, a little bit of like a, a, a um, benefit in terms of an argument where it's just mm -hmm. not always as practical. But I will, I want people to understand to take away that in terms of metabolic adaptation, in terms of the actual amount that your metabolism is gonna go down beyond which that you'd expect from just body weight, it's probably not speed of weight loss that's going to be the thing you need to be really like quote unquote afraid of or quote unquote uh concerned about or, or cognizant of it's probably total relative weight lost 
And if you want to lose fast, that comes with some downsides. If you want to lose slow, that comes with some downsides, trade-offs, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, if you're somebody who's lost a lot of weight, period, you're probably in for some, you know, a long period of time at maintenance before you can be, you know, plant the flag at this new body weight, maybe bring your settling point down, maybe feel both psychologically and physiologically in terms of diet fatigue back to a normal place. So I don't want people to think that going fast is inherently worse for metabolism or going slow is inherently worse for metabolism. It's probably mostly, and you can correct me or, or chime in, that it's probably mostly total magnitude of weight loss. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think that especially if we couch that with staying away from kind of the extremes of like just eating nothing and eating in like a 100 calorie deficit yeah. per day and just slowly trickling it down. If you stay away from those extremes, then I think that kind of the number one thing that's going to be like, Hey man, we're, we're feeling pretty rough after this diet is probably the total amount of fat you've lost relative to kind of where you've been, where your settling range is and stuff like that. And I really liked your point on the practicality of dieting aggressively. And on some level, you're playing with a little bit of fire there because the, the more that you kind of stretch that rubber band really hard, the more that it might kind of snap back. And, you know, Martin McDonald actually gives a really good kind of explanation of this to, in the argument for kind of aggressive dieting to where, Hey, you know, regardless of how fast you diet, you, when you stretch that rubber band, it's still stretching to kind of the same length either way. And you could still have that potential snapback either way. And I would say there's absolutely a lot of truth to that. But I would say that when someone comes to me and they're like, I want to lose fat as fast as I can, as soon as I can, it's a, a little bit of a red flag to me to where it sounds like they're kind of in a hurry for this. And, you know, it may lead to not the best transition out of it and maybe not thinking about that a whole lot. And yeah, I, I absolutely love that point, man. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever comes to me. They're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to diet aggressively for five weeks and then we're going to conservatively reverse <laughs> diet back to maintenance. And then we're going to transition into, you know, it's usually like, Hey, I want to drop yeah. a bunch of weight right now before, you know, Billy Bob's hoedown next month. It's like, it's never <laughs> something that's done in within a good headspace, you know? Um, yeah. I, we're, we're close on time. I know you have to go soon. I wanted to touch on one thing. Metabolic adaptation sounds like the boogeyman, right? It sounds like something that we, it's, just, it's in our way. It's stopping us getting what we want. And we touched earlier about, you know, how it's probably saved all of our lives. And to some degree, it's probably why we're all here right now. And we didn't die off yeah. millions of years ago. But um, I do want to touch about how it does go in both directions. Um, and I also want to touch on adaptive metabolisms versus it, it, uh, the concept of adapted adaptive versus rigid metabolisms. So could you touch a little bit upon how metabolic adaptation might work in both directions and then maybe what are adaptive and rigid metabolisms? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So we talked about, uh, or at least the majority of this podcast was metabolic adaptation in regards to dieting. But there seems to, it seems to work the other way a little bit too, to where when we try to overfeed ourselves, we actually adapt a little bit and we're able to maintain on more calories than we expected as we kind of push those calories up. It's like our body is kind of adapting for maintenance as we eat more and more food. However, a lot of people aren't as good as having those adaptations on that plus side. And evidence of this is all around you every single day of the prominence of overweight and obesity. Like we're not nearly as good as fighting kind of overfeeding to underfeeding. However, some individuals fight that 
that metabolic adaptation in terms of gaining, they really, really fight to gain weight. And they're very likely increasing their levels of non-exercise activity like we talked about earlier. And there's a really interesting overfeeding study to where they overfed individuals by like a thousand calories. And there were certain individuals that they burned all of that extra food off. So was nothing for them. Hold on, just really quick. I want to just reiterate what you just said before you move on. It's like they... (laughs) overfed people by a thousand calories and some people gained no weight, which means that their body figured out how to upregulate subconscious movement and burn off an extra thousand calories per day. Just want to touch on that. Like, uh, and, and, and and go ahead. What else, what else happened in that study? And the crazier side of things is some people actually decreased their energy expenditure. So it's like they ate all this food and they just sat around more. And there was like a huge deviation in the amount of calories burned in response to overfeeding. So the practical takeaway of that is when you go through a gaining phase or something like that, some people are going to be able to set their calories just two or 300 calories above maintenance, and they're going to gain slow and steadily as predicted that entire time. Whereas other people, you are going to have to keep upping those calories each and every time and stepping those calories up as you are gaining weight. So you kind of prevent yourself adapting to that calorie surplus. And this is the idea of someone being, having more of an adaptive metabolism. So that would be a person that you keep stepping their calories up and they keep having to eat more and more food so they keep gaining weight. And sometimes we'll see this work in kind of both directions to where if someone has to step their calories up a lot to keep gaining weight, well, they might also have to step their calories down quite a lot to keep losing weight. So they're kind of adaptive on both ends to where as the person that they might not be able to eat 4,000 calories and not gain much weight, like my man Jordan here, but they, they might also be able to set their calorie deficit at like 500 calories below maintenance and they lose weight consistently each and every week. So it seems as though if someone's kind of got a really adaptive metabolism, you might just have to make those changes a little bit more frequently up and down as you gain and lose weight. But if someone seems as though they can set their calories and kind of forget it, well, it probably works in kind of both ways as well. For for a lot of people, I kind of see that trend. Yeah, I, I also, I, I you talked the other day, you're like, sometimes I just sit around and think about stuff. And sometimes I think about like, at <laughs> what point in like, human being homo sapien evolution would adapting to a calorie surplus and burning and increasing meat have been of any use like what's in the, for the last 20 years like for the last 20 years yeah. it would have been really great for us to all upregulate metabolism whenever we eat in, in a calorie surplus so it seems that although there is this concept of adaptive metabolism where you can overfeed somebody and their metabolism upregulates or you can underfeed somebody and their metabolism downregulates like it seems that it and you i think you agree is that it probably is even more adaptive in the downward trend. And we tend to see more mm-hmm. adaptive nature in that downward trend where, where, you know, it is more, it is of more concern um, at today's, you know, obesogenic environment. Where we just have a lot of like easily accessible, cheap, hyperpalatable food. And we have a lot more people who are over consuming than under consuming. It seems that while there might be an adaptive mechanism in both directions that a team, it seems to be a little bit more, it seems to be stronger in the downward direction. Yeah, I 100% agree. I would say it's, it is far, it's far more rare to have a client that can just kind of keep upping their calories through a gaining phase. Like that doesn't happen a ton. Now, a decent portion of clients that does happen to, 
but not a ton. But on the flip side, I would say most clients do get to kind of a sticking point in their diet to where, hey, you know, we have to decrease a little bit here. So I would say it's much more common to have that adaptation on the negative side rather than kind of on the gaining side there. Yeah, definitely agree. I've had some clients where I put them in a calorie range and we don't touch it for 12 straight weeks and we see consistent levels of you know, steps stay equated across those 12 weeks and we see what, mm-hmm. fat loss on average every single week. And some people who can go four weeks and then, you know, quote unquote plateau, their metabolism has come down or maybe they subconsciously get less steps. It's They're having trouble getting their steps in because subconsciously they're getting up and moving less. And I definitely find that, yeah, like it's cool to kind of mentally masturbate about which one of those you are, but <laughs> it's definitely not something that you know, I don't want somebody listening to this, ah, oh, crap, I have a really adaptive metabolism and, you know, I have to really drop my calories low to kind of push past that. Like, you got to deal with, you got to deal with the the body that you have. There's a really vulgar, mm-hmm. you know, Jack Rayner? You do know Jack Rayner. Um, he yeah. had a really vulgar, uh, I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but about like just <laughs> living with the genetics you got and um, kind of not obsessing over, oh my God, is my metabolism adaptive or, or, or rigid, but understanding that you might be somebody who needs, like you said, to make more frequent calorie adjustments because your body does adapt in either direction. Maybe you're in a surplus. Mm-hmm. I find that that is kind of where I sit. Um, and, and we haven't done a, a legitimate cutting phase yet, but I am interested to see that. I've seen that my metabolism adapts upward, that I can maintain on, like we talked about, I can I could probably maintain where I'm at on 3,000 calories or 4,000 calories. And yeah. I know that right now, and my girlfriend can attest to this, that I fidget and I tap my toe and I, you know, I'm typing faster and I'm talking with my hands more and I'm, I'm sweating more, I'm moving more. And <laughs> I've never had this much energy. And I don't think it's a matter of like, oh, I'm eating so much food, so much, so much energy. I think it's a matter of the, like a large amount of, you know, my body upregulating meat because I'm defending this weight, right? And uh, that's kind of like where somebody would have an adaptive metabolism. It's, it's because their, their body's defending this weight range. If you lower calories, I don't want to go there. Guess what happens? I plateau quicker. I go up in calories. Guess what? I don't want to go there. So I quote unquote plateau quicker. And I don't think one's better than the other, because if it does actually happen that way, then when you want to be in a deficit, having a rigid metabolism might be more, uh, more favorable. You, you wouldn't have to decrease more often. You might not have to decrease as much. I'm very interested to do a self experiment when we do go into a calorie deficit, like how far down away from where we are now am I going to have to go? So that's that's something I look for. I don't want to jump from anecdote to you know reasoning to generalize reasoning, but it's definitely something that I'm interested in and in, in seeing how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that absolutely agree. Like it it usually works in one of the directions. It probably works in your favor. So if you're really adaptive, well, that's going to kind of work against you while you diet, but it's going to work for you while you're gaining. And if you're not very adaptive, well, you might not be able to eat crazy amounts of calories while you gain, but you might also not have to move your calories much while, while you diet. So it kind of works both ways. I'm very interested to see how (laughs) our little experiment together goes as well, but we're going to keep pushing that NAS on you, man. I tell you what, if we ever get to 200, I'll be, uh, I'll be thrilled. It's going up this week, by the way, I won't give anything away until check-in time, but yeah. Yeah. That's good, man. We need that moving up. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about in terms of metabolic adaptation? That's kind of all I had for today. I, I feel like I, we covered a whole shitload of stuff and, and um, some really, really great takeaways. I'm going to kind of do a little recap here, but is there any, if there's anything you kind of want to touch on that we haven't spoken about. Nah, man, I, I think that we covered everything that I was kind of thinking about. I'm sure I'll get off the podcast and be like, ah, shit, I wanted to touch on that. But you know, I think that's, I think that's good for this one for sure, man. Awesome. Just a quick sum up of some of the stuff we talked about, guys, is like 
metabolic adaptation is probably something that you shouldn't be fighting its existence. It's probably something that we need to really just accept that does exist and kind of work around. And while there might not be a ton of evidence, we can do things within fat loss phases. That doesn't mean you should shy away from things like refeeds and diet breaks if that improves your adherence and enjoyment. Um, and if you kind of want to cling on to the idea that there might be some benefit, that's totally cool too. But more probably more likely the case is that having long, long periods at maintenance in between cutting phases or after a cutting phase and you just transition to maintenance for life, that having those long periods, that sustained uh, signal of, you know, I'm not in restriction anymore, that sustained signal of being at maintenance calories is probably our best bet. And there might even be something to gaining actually a little bit of actual body fat, depending on how lean you get or how far you go from your settling point. Um, anything else really quick? Ah, maybe, you know, if you are doing in a deficit phase, if you are looking to, to some degree mitigate that like natural understood down regulation and metabolism, keeping your steps at a reasonable level or at least keeping them where they are, because if you were to take your Fitbit off and not monitor, it would probably go down. So keeping your steps where they are is probably something really great. And uh, yeah, that's really all I wanted to recap on. I want to make sure people come uh, come away from this podcast with this. I know we kind of we kind of bounced around a little bit. Yeah, man. I, I think that's a good summary. I think it was well said, man. Awesome. Let, let everybody know where they can find you. Ryan's got some really great Instagram content, really great YouTube webinars. Drop a line, my friend. Yeah, man. So Ryan Solomon on the gram and on YouTube and then revivestronger.com. You can find more about our team and that sort of thing. So I think that'll be good for him. Excellent, dude. I had a blast chatting. I know we're going to have to do it again sometime. Yeah, man. It was it was good, man. Like we talk every week at our check-ins, but <laughs> there's something about having these live talks that yeah. are even better, man. So awesome. it was good. Awesome, dude. All right, dude. Um, and I appreciate you guys tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope you had some good takeaways and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.